If you're a California conservative, a libertarian, a moderate Democrat, believe in common sense, or just a sane person, this is the political podcast for you. It's the California Underground Podcast. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Coffee and California Politics. We'll give everybody a minute to hop on. Good morning, everybody. Got your coffee. Today's going to be a little bit different. Today's going to be more like a book club. Um, first, I have my, uh, not only am I perfect, on the other side, I'm Italian too, in honor of uh, Columbus Day, so, or as I like to call it, Italian Heritage Day, because that's what it really is. I mean, I guess we could talk about that later, but that's not really what we want to talk about today. Today is going to be a little bit different in the sense that it'll be like a little bit of a book club. So if you all remember, I talked about this book a lot. It's called Don't Think of an Elephant. Um, Know Your Values and Frame the Debate by George Lakoff. Lakoff. And it's the essential progressive guide for the issue that define our future climate, inequality, immigration, healthcare, and more. Um, And you're probably saying, well, why are you reading a book about how to frame your progressive ideals? It's because you have to sometimes learn the language of the enemy uh, to learn how to defeat the language of the enemy. Um, because that's one of the best ways to do it, as opposed to trying to argue against a brick wall where you don't really, you're not breaking through to people. So this book, actually, this is a new edition. I didn't know this when I went to the library. The The book originally is from 2004, and the, whole war, the world was much more different in 2004, if you remember. Uh, George Bush was president, and they thought like it was going to be just Republican dominance for like the next decade uh, until you know Obama came along and Obama changed a lot of things. Uh, because of the way he spoke and the way he framed issues and stuff like that. And he talks about it a little bit in this book, because uh, this book was updated uh, 2014. So 10 years later, he talks a little bit about Obama and how he reframed the argument and did a good job. But this guy was really kind of essential to setting up the parameters and how to debate um, when it comes to progressive issues. And why that's important is because when you read this book, and I've been reading it the past couple of days, I was reading it last night in preparation of this, uh, I'm going to go over some passages from this first uh, chapter called Framing 101, How to Take Pack Public Discourse. It's interesting because you read the book and first off, you're like, man, it was a completely different world back in 2004 when he originally wrote this to think that conservatives were just going to go on like a 10 or 20 year dominance of of not only political wins, political power, media power, and all that. Now you look at the world how many years later and you go, it's almost like the complete opposite where progressives really, I call them, they, they call themselves progressives. They're not really progressives. They're more regressives than anything. Uh, the status now really have control of the media. They have control of everything. They have control of big tech. I don't think back in 2004, he really foresaw like the rise of social media and all that stuff. So Take it for what it is. The science still remains basically the same. And it's still there's still a lot of good lessons in here. So when you read this book, it is a weird look back into history. And it's still applicable because you can just take the conservative part and flip it and say progressive. So everything he's talking about, you just take it and flip it on its head and say, okay, well, he's talking about how conservatives do X, Y, and Z just take out conservatives and put in progressives are doing X, Y, and Z, and it applies almost perfectly. So I don't know, maybe people read his book and maybe they've all internalized it. And now this is like required reading for anyone who's part of any sort of progressive nonprofit or political action committee, because it sure does seem that way. It sure seems like they have kind of grabbed the hold of the narrative and the argument, especially talking about it here in California. The reason I want to read this book, and I I encourage everyone to read this one, you can pick it up at your library. I'm sure it's not really a hot seller at your library. I picked it up like really quickly. It's not like it was on hold for like 20 people. Um, Just a side note, it's always interesting to see what's on hold and how many holds are on something. Like I just got a book. It's called Cynical Theories. Uh, I haven't dove into it yet, but it's called Cynical Theories, and it's all about... um, CRT in schools and, and all this stuff. And why are they teaching it? Uh, it took, I put the hold on it three or four months back, probably longer than three or four months back. And it just finally was available for me. So it gives you an idea of like, who's really ordering these or putting holds on these books. It gives you kind of an idea of like how popular books are in a certain area. So the fact that I was able to get this book 
really quickly and that other book not so quickly. I mean, this book's a little older, so shows you there's a a good demand for some of those books. I also think that places like San Diego, they probably only order one copy of these books. They don't order like eight copies. Like some of these books they really like, they order like eight or ten copies and there's so many of them. Um, Like I'm sure if you want to go get Obama's new autobiography, his ghostwritten biography, I'm sure there's probably like 20 copies you can get from the local library. But anyway, so today it's going to be like a little bit of a book club. I'm going to read you some of these passages and we're going to discuss some of the passages and how that really applies to what we're trying to do here in California and why it's a problem when we kind of talk about the California GOP and what's going on with the California GOP and why they're not doing these things. And you can basically put the California GOP in the spot of the progressives as he's narrating it. Um, so let's hop right into it. We can, I'll leave some room at the end. We can discuss more. if you want to ask any questions, I haven't gotten to the framing one Oh two part, which is how you actually start framing. I think there'll be a, probably another episode to talk about that, um, to talk kind of in depth about how that, and we can start to apply it. But I think this is really important talking about framing in general, because I've always talked about framing and I've talked about how framing in California is really, really important. And conservatives or anybody right of, I don't know, anybody right of far left has not been able to really frame their arguments. Um, And that's why it's so important, especially in California, where you got to start moving the needle a little bit at a time. You got to learn how to start framing these arguments. You can't go from one radical to another. I know a lot of people think we can just go from one radical to another. It takes time and it takes a lot of time and effort to do these things. So. I know a lot of people think like, oh, we're, we're going to turn California red overnight. You're not going to turn California red overnight. You have to work at it and you have to get really good at it. And this is how we do it. We start outsmarting them with their own language. Um, so he starts off in this part. He's talking about people who are biconceptual. So biconceptual is basically a person who is a little bit here and a little bit there. Now, That applies especially in California because we have a large percentage of people who are non-party affiliated, who are independents. Um, So they would technically be these biconceptuals. So there's a whole bunch of like this, this whole bunch of people out there, millions of voters are out there who are biconceptual, really. And you have to learn how to get those people on your side. And so he talks about how you get these people on your side. How did the Republicans back in 2004 get a lot of independence on their side as well? Um, so it's really the issue of the biconceptual. Um, Dean talks about this mother father frame and this nurturant mother frame. Um, you know, I mean, he's a progressive, so he's going to write it as like progressives. Everything they do is they touch the gold, but whatever. Uh, This is very important to understand. The goal is to activate your model and the people in the middle. The people who are in the middle have both models used regularly in different parts of their lives. What you want to do is get them to use your model for politics, to activate your worldview and moral system in their political decisions. You do that by talking to people using frames based on your worldview. However, in doing that, you do not want to offend the people in the middle who have been up, who have up to this point made the opposite choice. Since they have and use both models in their lives, they might still be persuaded to activate the opposite model for politics. This is very interesting because I've said this before, especially with everything that's happened with COVID. There is a good amount. There's a there's a window here. There's a there's a big cognitive political window, a political cognitive window here where we can start to change people's minds and we can start to change people over to there is another option or plenty of other options besides just voting Democrat, just Democrat status the entire time, which is what happens in California is that people are just stuck in their ways. But a lot of people have sort of woken up in the sense of they were Democrats and now they're not Democrats and now they, they're kind of in the middle or they don't really support Democrats as much anymore. And now they're starting to rethink it like their worldview, their frame, thus their worldviews and their frames have been kind of shattered a little bit. So There's an opportunity there for the political, the savvy political operatives to kind of take this and build that worldview and that frame in those people's minds and say, hey, there's a different way. Let's talk about it. Here's a different way. And you start to build that frame in their mind. And then they slowly start to accept maybe your point of view or your political platform and your politicians. So that's what he's talking about here is that these people in the middle who have conceptions of both 
especially in California, it's a weird political landscape where you get a lot of people who are Republicans, but they're maybe more libertarian, um, libertarian in the sense of like, I wouldn't say they're like true libertarians because they, they call themselves like the faux libertarian where they're like, well, I'm, I'm fiscally conservative, but I'm socially liberal. That's not really, we could, we could have a whole like thing about like what true libertarianism is. And that's not really true libertarianism, but you have a lot of people like that. You have a lot of people in California who kind of have their feet in both places. They may be a little bit more socially progressive. They may be more a little live and let live. Some people may not like that. Some people may not like the fact that they like this live and let live. But that's sort of where we are. And I think there's a lot of people now with the the rising price of gases and housing and all that, that people are starting to maybe say, "Ah, maybe I might be a little bit more fiscally conservative because it seems like the government takes a lot of my money and spends it on stuff. And I I don't really get a lot in return. Um, So that's what he's starting to say here is that uh, you have to start to activate in their mind and build these worldviews in their mind and be like, hey, these are ideas. This is our worldview. um, And here are our values and start to build that in people so that they begin to accept your political platform, because otherwise it's hard to really it's hard. That's why you get cognitive pushback and cognitive dissonance is you 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 try and push someone towards a political view that they don't agree with, that they know can like in their heart, they don't really agree with. And it's too radical for them. So they're not just all of a sudden overnight going to be like, oh, I, I was a you know big Gavin Newsom Democrat. Now, all of a sudden I'm a, a Trump Republican. That's not going to happen. It rarely ever happens. So you kind of have to slowly move them towards your side. Got to keep going because there's a lot of stuff I want to cover in this. Uh, he talks about how George Bush changed things. Um, he's rolled out stuff like the Compassion Conservative, Clear Skies Initiative, Healthy Forest, No Child Left Behind. Um, And he said this language is to mollify people who have nurturant values while the real policies are strict father policies. Quick rundown. He says that basically conservatives have this strict father disciplinary worldview where like uh, there's an authority figure and they should be telling you what to do. And that's the conservative worldview. I don't really agree with that as much anymore. Um, it may have been with like neocons and Republicans back in the early 2000s. I don't think it's that way anymore. I think it's more populist, kind of anarchist, libertarian leaning. Um, and he says progressives have this nurturant parent view. So you have those nurturant parent views who are like, who are more about nurturing their child or more about giving them love and, and nurturing their growth, you know, helicopter parents, stuff like that. And that's basically his view. Notice how he says, like, he kind of already puts the frame in a way that's like strict father, bad, nurturant parent. Very nice. They make you macaroni and cheese when you want. That's what you want. Um, This is the use of Orwellian language, language that means the opposite of what it says to appease people in the middle at the same time as you pump up the base. That is the part of the conservative strategy. Liberals and progressives typically react to this strategy in a self-defeating way. The usual reaction is, quote, these conservatives are bad people. They are using Orwellian language. They are saying the opposite of what they mean. They are deceivers. Bad, bad. All true, but we should recognize that they use Orwellian language precisely when they have to, when they are weak, when they cannot just come up and say what they mean. Imagine if they came out supporting a dirty skies bill or a forest destruction bill or a kill public education bill. They would lose. They are aware people do not support what they are actually trying to do. Orwellian language points to weakness. Now, I want, I want to repeat this word again, or, or this phrase. Orwellian language points to weakness, Orwellian weakness. When you hear, and this is directly from the book, when you hear Orwellian language, note where it is, because it is a guide to where they are vulnerable. They do not use it everywhere. It is very important to notice this and use their weakness to your advantage. Um. I mean, that's loaded right there. The fact that he puts this. Oh, someone asked what book am I reading from? It's don't think of an elephant. Yep. That's the that's the book we're discussing today. So I want you to think about that for a second. Orwellian language, when you hear it from the other side, signals weakness because they have to use Orwellian language to hide what they're really trying to do. And in 2020 and 2021, I feel like we've seen a lot of this Orwellian language of it's for the greater good. And it's, um, you know, it's about compassion and it's about if we could save one life and it's about all these things that they, these kind of buzzwords 
that make you feel good that people in the middle are who are just kind of not really one or the other say well yeah okay that makes sense i'm gonna agree with it in re- when in reality they're using that language they're using this language of compassion of the better good we care about everybody and it's always this idea of what we care we care we care um shows that they really don't care because they don't really care about the consequences. And we talked about this last week on coffee and California politics. They don't really care about the long-term effects of what they are doing. They just care about getting their message out. So this is one lesson I want you to take. I want you to internalize this. Uh, Don't think I'm an elephant. No, the name of the book is don't think of an elephant. Um, And there's a whole story why it's called don't think of an elephant at the beginning of the book. I want you to think about this and really internalize it. And and when you go around social media or you read the news or stuff like that, think about this. Think about the fact that he's saying Orwellian language points to weakness from the other side. When the other side has to use Orwellian language, it means that they are weak on that point and you, that's a place you can attack them. Now, of course, you get into a whole different point. Where like, how do you attack them? That's a whole, probably a whole different episode where we talk about framing and all that stuff. However internalize that internalize it and think about it and apply it apply it in where you are hearing the this orwellian language and say okay the news or msnbc they're they're telling me all these things um however i don't believe that that might mean that they they are weak on this subject so they're trying to change it around because they don't want to tell you what they're really doing um you know so it's stuff like you know all these buzzwords just think of all the buzzwords um but internalize that. That's one of those things. I, I read it last night. I was like, Phew. like, that's a really good point. And that's why you read this stuff. You read this stuff, not because, you know, uh, well, I mean, you read this stuff because it's educational, but you read this stuff because you have to kind of step into the mind of progressives or status and figure out why are they talking the way they are? Why are they talking this way? How do we kind of combat and push back? How do we learn to use their language against them and how do we start to craft language in our own way how do we take their techniques and change it so that we can use it and win that's ultimately what the goal is is to win uh he talks about frank Luntz, uh who is the language guy on the right i don't think he's that much of a language guy on the right anymore because he completely whiffed on donald trump didn't really uh he thought that donald trump was a joke but anyway that's a whole different history lesson uh, but Luntz is more about more than language. He recognizes that the right use of language starts with ideas, with the right framing of issues, the framing that reflects a consistent conservative moral perspective, what we have called a strict father morality. Luntz's writing is not just about language. For each issue, he explains what the conservative reasoning is, what the progressive reasoning is, and how the progressive arguments can best be attacked from a conservative perspective. He is clear. Ideas come first. One of the major mistakes liberals make is that they think now for all you are just joining. Yeah, we're reading from a book that's old and it's giving advice to liberals and progressives. Whenever you hear him talking about liberals and progressives, just in your mind mentally, just say like, um, actually, I just say conservatives, like just flip it around, because that's the point of this is why we're kind of like switching. We're, we're, we're turning the tables, you know, as old Michael Scott said, oh, how the table, how the turntables or whatever. One of the major mistakes liberals make is that they think that they have all the ideas they need. They think that all they lack is media access or maybe some magic bullet phrases, the liberal equivalent of partial birth abortion. Remember that buzzword? That was was a long time ago. When you think you just lack words, what you really lack are ideas. Ideas come in the form of frames. When the frames are there, the words come readily. There's a way you can tell when you lack the right frames. There's a phenomenon you have probably noticed. A conservative on TV who uses words, uh, on TV uses two words like tax relief. And the progressive has to go into a paragraph long discussion of his own view. The conservative can appeal to the established frame that taxation is an affliction or burden, which allows for the two word phrase tax relief. But there is no established frame on the other side. You can talk about it, but it takes some doing because there is no established frame. No fixed idea already out there. In cognitive science, there is a name for this phenomenon. It's called hypocognition, the lack of ideas you need, the lack of a relatively simple fixed frame that can be evoked by a word or two. So what he's basically saying is stuff that I have said before. 
which is that you have to have ideas and you have to have a platform. And what he's saying in one of those paragraphs is about the conservative on TV who goes in and says, well, we need tax relief. We need tax relief. They frame the issue and the argument is already set. The, the gauntlet has been thrown down. Tax relief. We need tax relief, saying that basically taxes are an affliction. They are a burden. They steal property. You know, taxation is theft. All those kind of frame that frame has been built in your mind. So when you hear tax relief, you go, oh, thank God, someone's going to come and give me some tax relief because taxation is so bad. Um, that's what he's talking about. He's built this. They built this frame. And now you come up with this two word idea, these, these, this two word buzzword. And that buzzword activates in your mind, if you are the listener, that taxation is bad and you're the politician who is going to provide tax relief. So it's kind of this, this game of where you have these subconscious ideas that you have to get people to believe and believe these frames. And then you come out with these ideas and then you come out with these buzzwords. Yeah, that's basically what they are. They're buzzwords that you can then go on to public forums and use. And when you build the frame this way, it's hard for anyone to argue outside of it, because in this example where the conservative comes out and says tax relief, the progressive then has to ramble on about, well, actually, taxation is not, uh, you know, it's not bad and it, we need it and, it's, you know, it's wise and we need it for this and X, Y and Z. But in reality, the, the, the argument's already over, because once you throw out the word tax relief, most people who are listening say, yeah, taxes suck. Like, I hate taxes. And someone's going to give me a relief. I'm for that guy. And then the other guy has to try and argue why they're not for it. And that that they're already at a losing game. So when you establish that frame, it's incredibly hard to argue outside of that. That's what it comes down to. It's incredibly hard to argue outside of it. Um, and keep going a little bit. Progressives are suffering from massive hypocognition. And again, take the word progressives and flip it with conservatives. Um, and in this sense, flip it with the California GOP are suffering from massive hypocognition. The conservatives used to suffer from it when Goldwater lost in 1964. They had very few concepts that they have today in the intermediate 50 years. Conservative thinkers have filled in their conceptual gaps, but our conceptual gaps are still there. Um, okay. I'm going to take a sip of coffee because this has been a lot of reading so far. Let me know in the chat if you're enjoying the reading, if you like this definitely can do more of it. Because like I said, we got a lot of work to do in 2022 and we need the tools to make it happen. Can't just go out there and keep trying to, you know, put a square peg in a round hole. We got to start, got to start revamping these ideas and our, our strategies and stuff like that. Ah, coffee got a little cold. That's okay. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So he goes on to this whole tirade about um, framing taxation differently, you know, like getting this message out there. And in a sense, I think it kind of worked. Um, so like one way he kind of framed it and tell me if this sounds familiar to you. Our parents invested in the future, ours as well as theirs through taxes. They invested their tax money in the interstate highway system, the internet, the scientific and medical establishments, our communication systems, our airline system, the space program. They invested in the future and we are reaping the tax benefits, the benefits from taxes they paid. Today, we have assets, highways, schools, and colleges, the internet airlines that come from the wise investments they made. Um, so, you know, that's one way he wants to frame it. Another way he says you can frame it as a message. Taxation is paying your dues, paying your membership fee in America. If you join a country club or a community center, you pay fees. Why? You did not build a swimming pool. That sounds familiar. Uh, sounds like somebody we, who said, you did not build that. If you have a successful business, you did not build that. Uh, someone has to clean it. You may not use the squash court, but you still have to pay for your dues. Otherwise, it won't be maintained and will fall apart. People who avoid taxes like corporations that move to Bermuda are not paying their dues to their country. It is patriotic to be a taxpayer. It is traitorous to desert our country and not pay your dues. Um, so this is what he put out in like 20, 2004. Now, keep in mind, his whole thing is that you have to really build frames slowly but surely over years, and it takes a lot of time. Um, and he goes on to say, talking about like Bill Gates Sr. and how they just use the Internet. First off, there's an argument that like taxes didn't build all that stuff. You know, like, let's just get that out of the way. Taxes didn't build all that stuff. OK, 
Um, there's a lot of private investment as well. That's one of the things that like government likes to do, but that's old. Getting off track here. Anyway, that's a whole different argument, but you don't want to argue in their frame. You want to argue outside their frame and build your own frame. Uh, do, 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 do. The taxpayer investments support companies and wealthy investors. There are no self-made men. You did not build that. The wealthy have gotten rich using what previous taxpayers have paid for. They owe the taxpayers of this country a great deal and should be paying it back. You did not build that. Or the other way, the other one that I wrote down here is must pay your fair share. The billionaires and the millionaires are not paying their fair share. Think how many times they've repeated fair share. Now, the millionaires and billionaires are not paying their fair share. It's almost exactly the playbook. This guy's like laying out the playbook of what they've been doing for the past 10, 20 years and why it's working. It's because they built these frames and now we're trying to argue in their frames and it doesn't work. Um, uh, this is just talking about like how progressive groups back then weren't really well funded. They weren't doing so well. I guess George Soros wasn't a big deal. Um, then he talks about like different issues like tort reform. Um, not really that interesting if you don't really care about tort reform. Uh, I, although I thought this was pretty much interesting is that he, he makes this whole like moral argument about how tort reform is bad and how it allows companies to just kind of like do whatever they want and like write off any losses because they can just be like, well, whatever, whatever's the worst that can happen. We know like we could do this and the worst that could happen is like, we'll get sued and we'll have to pay out X amount, which they can write into their business plan. Um, but it's funny how he admitted that in addition, you look at where Democrats get much of their money in their individual states is significantly from the lawyers who win tort cases. So it's almost like he has this whole moral argument and then he goes like, oh, but just keep in mind, like a lot of money that comes to the Democratic Party comes from like these lawyers who sue and get bajillions of dollars in tort cases. So it's not completely selfless and moral, but whatever. Uh, let's see what else did he talk about. Uh, unlike, unlike the right, the left does not think strategically. I would argue that that's completely flipped now, especially in California. We think issue by issue. We generally do not try to figure out what minimal change can we enact that will have effects across many issues. There are very few exceptions. There are also strategic initiatives of another kind. What I call slippery slope initiatives take the first step and you're on the way off the cliff. Conservatives are very good at slippery slope initiatives. Take partial birth abortion. There are almost no such cases. Why do conservatives care so much? Because it's a first step down a slippery slope to ending all abortion. It puts out there a frame of abortion as a horrendous procedure when the most when most operations ending pregnancy are nothing like this. I would say that frame is still working today. I think there's a lot of people, especially in the middle, who kind of believe in that frame. Um, he talks about education. And then he has these like 11 commandments of what progressives have to do. He says the conservatives don't have to win on issue after issue after issue. There are many things a progressive can do about it. Here are 11. Um, now keep in mind, let's, you know, mental exercise, change what they say about conservatives and just flip it to progressives. So flip flop the, the terms. So it makes sense in your mind. First, notice what conservatives have done, right? What progressives have done, right? And where conservatives have missed the boat. It is more than just control the media, though that is far from trivial. What they have done right is to successfully frame the issues from their perspective, acknowledge their successes and our failures. We've done that plenty on this, 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 what is this podcast and this show. I've talked a lot about it. I've talked a lot about how, especially California GOP or any sort of opposition really has not done a good job of acknowledging that the progressives are just better at doing this, that the progressives are just way better at framing their issues and that they're way better at sounding like the good guy in the sense that Republicans are not good at putting themselves as the good guy in California, that they always are being pegged as the bad guy, the person who wants to take away stuff, who wants to remove this stuff from you. Um, and in reality, that's not what the argument and what the other side is trying to advocate, but because they've set up this frame that Republicans are bad guys. I mean, look at the recall, look at the recall and how they were able to take Larry Elder and basically call him a white supremacist and a neo-Nazi and he loved Trump and all that stuff. They were able to just kind of say, he's the bad guy. Don't vote for him. And it's as simple as that. The, the frame was already set. 
the frame was already there in a lot of Californians' minds where they said, oh, yeah, okay, I don't like Trump. I thought Trump was bad. I, I don't like neo-Nazis. I'm not racist. But they then were like, well, I'm not going to vote. And then I'm going to vote down the recall because I don't want like a, a white supremacist or whatever um, to, to take over California. So that's a frame that they use. And they always seem to be these compassionate progressives of we need to do X, Y and Z. We need to spend more tax dollars on this. And we're very compassionate about the homeless situation. We're very compassionate about, you know, the immigrant situation. We're very compassionate. It's, it's very we're the good guys, they're the bad guys, and we're morally superior. And that's the frame that they've set up here. So you have to acknowledge it. And you have to acknowledge and say, like, they've done a good job. They've done a good job of that. And that's exactly what they should be doing. Um, so first off, it's kind of like, you know, you got to accept it. You got to accept the fact that they've done a lot better job than anybody who was opposing them. And we got to get better. We got to get better at framing the argument and changing the entire frame of the argument so that people are not constantly just being shot down simply because of an R next to their name. If an R is next to their name, people are already going, well, my frame is that they're the bad guy. So we got to change that. But there's, there's good, there's good candidates out there who who I've talked to who want to do this and want to change the perception of Republicans or libertarians for that matter. Um, You know, we had the the chair of the libertarian LA uh, chapter on. So libertarians and Republicans. Um, Second, remember, don't think of an elephant. If you keep their language and their framing and just argue against it, you lose because you are reinforcing their frame. Um, okay, so that's the name of the book. Don't think of an elephant. If you've never heard the story, I've brought it up a, a, like a dozen times already. I'll, I'll rephrase it real quickly. Um, the the This author taught a class. And one of the things that he does as like an exercise for his class is he walks in the first thing he says, he says, okay, we're going to talk about something in like five minutes, but whatever. And I want you to think about something in those five minutes that we're going to talk about. Um, but whatever you do, don't think of an elephant. And so by the time he gets, you know, five minutes over, he, he, he asks people, he goes around the room, he says, well, what did you think of? And someone goes like, I thought of Dumbo or somebody thinks I thought about the elephants at the circus. You know, the problem is he's already set up the frame. That's why it's called. Don't think of an elephant. Um, and that's, that is so absolutely true. And this is something I've hammered on. I've learned from this book that if you keep their language and you keep arguing within their frame, you're going to lose. You're going to lose 99.9% of the time. And my favorite example of someone on the right who did a really good job of framing, and I don't think he knew that he was framing. I think he just was good at marketing, which in a way is kind of framing your, you know, what you're trying to sell. You're, you're marketing yourself. Um, was Donald Trump, you know, and you look at 2015, no one was talking about immigration the way Donald Trump was talking about immigration. And because he was able to put out a frame and say, like, I know people want to talk about this. And he also knew from like social media and Twitter, he was able to get a lot of data and, you know, people were um, big on the idea of like building a wall and stuff like that. So like he knew that like this frame was already out there and I'm going to use it and I'm going to jump into this frame and argue it. So he was he was the best at it because he set up the frame and no other Republican could actually argue in it because he set up the frame. He said, well, I'm going to talk about the wall. I'm going to talk about immigration and everybody else was caught flat footed and they didn't know what to do. So that's one great example. I don't know if he did it on purpose. He might have done it on purpose. Um, Either way, it was a masterful move because he completely dominated after that. Uh, third, the truth will not set you free. Just speaking truth to power doesn't work. You need to frame the truths effectively from your perspective. Now, this is something I see a lot of people really get frustrated with. And, you know, you hear like Ben Shapiro, who always goes, okay, guys, like uh, facts don't care about your feelings, guys. Okay, okay. Um, by the way, buy a mind pillow. Um, truth is not always the be all and end all. And a lot of people get frustrated and they bang their heads against the wall because they're like, look, I have the numbers. I have the statistics. I know exactly what uh, I, I, I know this issue in and out. I know the truth. And people get really upset when they're like, here's the truth. Here's the truth. And people don't accept the truth for some reason. They're like, I don't get it. I, you know, I'm not buying it. I'm still going to go with the other one because truth itself is not how you win. You have to frame it in such a way um, from your perspective and from your worldview that is 
that will activate in people's minds how they're going to think about things. So you can't just speak truth and especially truth. And, and this is one of the I mean, this is one of the biggest issues we've seen in politics in the past 10 years is you can't just use truth because we're so politically divided and there's so much political tribalism that at the end of the day, you could tell someone in the face, no, this is the truth. Here are the numbers. But people at the end of the day will be like, mm, I don't buy it. It doesn't fit my frame. So therefore, I, I'm not going to buy it. So you have to learn how to frame things to kind of get them to come over to the side. A little bit of bait. You got to throw it out to the, activate their frame, get them to come over and kind of open their eyes a little bit and be like, oh, okay, I, I might agree with that. Fourth, you need to speak from your morals perspective at all times. Progressive policies follow from progressive values. Switch that out. Uh, get clear on your values and use the language of values. Drop the language of policy wonks. Right. And I think the progressives recently have done that very, very well. I think they've done a very, very good job of making everything about moral superiority, almost to the point of like, it's sickening and it's sickening to the point where they believe that they have such moral superiority that you can't argue with anybody about anything. I mean, you can't debate anybody about anything because it's all this moral superiority and people, especially those on the left have done a very good job of grabbing that high ground and being like, uh, yep, we're morally superior. We're better people than you. And we're more compassionate than you. And that's it. We're better people than you. And in reality, Conservatives haven't done a good job of that. They just kind of argue against it. And it kind of, again, this all comes full circle to what happens when you set up a frame. They've set the frame. They're moral, compassionate people. And then we try and say, well, no, you're not moral and compassionate people uh, because of X, Y, and Z. Because you, you, But they're like, no, nope, we're morally superior. That's it. We're morally superior. And you're racist because you're racist or a bigot for disagreeing with me. Because we're morally superior and you're not morally superior. Um you know, we care about all people. You don't care about people. So the fact that you're arguing against me shows that you don't care about all people. See how easy it is? Once they've set the frame, it's so easy to argue when you're just like, well, I care about people. You don't care about people. What do you mean you don't care about people? Well, you don't, you don't want this, you know, you don't want X, Y, and Z. Um, so you have to get a little bit better at kind of presenting that moral argument. You know, it, it's not, my personal favorite, because I'm more of a policy wonk, but at the same time, people vote with their values. People do vote with their values. And that's something he talks about earlier on in the chapter is why do people who believe a whole bunch of things, they vote against their interests? Like, why do people in California who complain about how expensive it is to live in California still vote for Democrats? Because they vote with their values. They vote with their values because they believe that someone is better than the other person. They think like, if I vote for that person, I'm a good person because I care about people because that's what they said. They said they care about people. So I care about people. So I'm going to vote with my values. Um, but that's what they do. And that's, that's one thing you got to get better at. And yet you, you have to do that by changing the whole narrative and changing the whole moral argument. You can't argue in there. They've already taken this, um, this moral authority. Can you make the live available on your page? Absolutely. It's available always right after, um, at, right afterwards, I always post it up. So if you want to share it with people who you think might get a kick out of this, go right ahead. Uh, fifth, understand where conservatives are coming from. Again, switch out conservatives and progressives. Get their strict father morality and its consequences clear. Know what you are arguing against. Be able to explain why they believe what they believe. Uh, try to predict what they will say. So in this specific example, if we're using his examples, if you're trying to figure out where progressives are coming from, if you're using his model, which is the nurturant parent model, which is, you know, I, I would say it's probably right on. It's probably spot on. Um, you have to learn where they're coming from and you have to be able to cut it off at the pass. And you almost have to show that they are not what they are. And this is something... I've said before, especially in this nurturant parent model, is that we're so compassionate and we're very nurturing. We're, we're very nurturing. We want to care for people. We want to take care of people. When in reality, you could start poking holes in that argument right away and be like, well, actually, you're not nurturing because uh, when you raise the gas tax, you hurt the lowest income and uh, you know inner city minorities. So you're not nurturing. And then you start to like 
crumble and poke holes in it and say, well, you're not nurturant because of X, Y, and Z. You're not nurturant because you passed this. You didn't see that this had unintended consequences. And that's where you start. You can start to chip away at their nurturant parent model. And, and people who are afflicted by the nurturant parent model will look at that and say, oh, they're not so nurturant. I need to find someone else who might be more nurturant or within that model, that nurturant parent frame that I have. And that's where I think like conservatives and Republicans can have like that, that really that sort of, there's a lot of issues you can get in there and say like, look, we care more because one, we want to make it more affordable for you to live, to have a life. Um, we're not going to tax you by the mile because we know it hurts the people who commute and who can't afford to live in cities. We know that, um, if we give people school choice, their kids could go to a better school and they'll get a better education. They don't have to be stuck with the school or the public school where they are because of their zip code. If you want to help get your kid out of the inner city, if it's a bad neighborhood, you can do so under school choice because we want to make sure we want to make sure that it's better. Uh, someone said we should not use nurturing because we don't believe the government is our parent. See, I don't think. That's correct. That's absolutely correct. We don't want the government to be our parent. And instead, we want to say like maybe a nurturing kind of like community where we build a state and a and a culture where like the, the people, the people itself are nurturing, where our community is nurturing, where in California we're nurturing. That's where you start to activate it and you change it where people say, OK, I, I can buy into that. Um, so, yeah, there's there's. You could go on and on about different school choices or different policies and how you really apply nurturing, which I said, there's there's a lot more of this book and there's probably going to be a whole nother episode, um, maybe a couple episodes. This is a pretty big book. Um, so, yeah, there's going to be more episodes on this. Uh, six, think strategically across issue areas. Think in terms of large moral goals, goals, not in terms of programs for their own sake. Seven, think about the consequences of proposals form progressive slippery slope initiatives, um, you know, create conservative slippery slope initiatives. Eighth, remember what voters vote their identity and their value, which need not coincide with their self-interest. And I said that before, a lot of voters don't necessarily, especially in California, um, will vote against their interests because they they want to be viewed as a good and moral person they want to be viewed as a good moral person more than they really care about their self-interest they vote with their values they vote with the values that if i vote for this it'll be better for the community and this is the community and the person i want to be um and it works it works on both sides you know a lot of people will say like you know, the left likes to argue, why do poor people in West Virginia vote for Republicans overwhelmingly when it goes against their self-interest? Like, we're Democrats. We could come in with all our government assistance and blah, blah, blah. And we can do X, Y, and Z. Um, but that's not really what, you know, they're starting, they're trying to argue, like, why are they voting against their interests? And it happens here in California. In California, it's almost a perfect example. It's almost a polar opposite of those those the poor in West Virginia who are voting for Republicans. Like why are people here voting for Democrats when they complain about how expensive it is? And that's really an issue is that you have to get better at getting in there and getting to people's values and their identity um, and connecting with them there. Uh, ninth one, he talks about all the different modes of progressive thought. Um, I mean, I, we, we could go through like what the different modes of like conservative thought are, but um, yeah, but I think there's, it's important. It's important that you want to make sure when your messaging that you get out to all the different people who are different conservatives, you have social conservatives, you have libertarians, you have fiscal conservatives, you know, you have all these different areas of people who are on the right, you have populists who are, you know, you have people who are moderate Democrats who are coming over. So there's a lot of different areas. You got to make sure you're kind of activating all those different, different groups. Uh, 10th, be proactive, not reactive. We've talked about this before. Play offense, not defense. Practice reframing every day on every issue. Don't just say what you believe. Use your frames, not their frames. Use them because they fit the values you believe in. Uh, we've talked about this a lot, and I've said this before. You got to be proactive. 
if you give the, the left any sort of credit, they are extremely proactive. And we can't just continually be reactive to every single policy that comes out and say, oh, I don't believe in this policy. I don't like this policy. I'm not I'm against this policy. And I, I don't like it. Like that's reactive because you're constantly arguing in their frame. You have to be proactive. You have to come out with a platform. That platform has to put out popular ideas or ideas that are going to work. Um, you go out and you're proactive on those ideas, make people argue in those frames, push those ideas, push them, push them on social media, push them on the news, push them everywhere you can. And that's how you be proactive because you start to get that out there and then people start to listen to it and go, okay, yeah. But when you're reactive, like the GOP here is in California, you're never going to win. You're never going to win when you're reactive. And that's all the California GOP does is reacts. Oh, we don't like these new taxes. We don't like this new dumb law. We don't like X, Y, and Z, blah, 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 blah. And like, great. What's your solution? You know, change your solution. Change it. Don't just make it. We hate everything because that's not going to work. You can't just say we hate everything. Last one. And then we'll open up for discussion. Sorry. It took a little bit longer than I was uh, expecting. Um, 11th speak to the progressive base in order to activate the nurturant model by conceptual voters. Don't move to the right. Rightward movement hurts in two ways. It alienates the progressive base and it helps conservatives by activating their model and by conceptual voters. Um, right. But in this case, you want to speak to your base, but you also want to get the people in the middle as well. You know, you don't want to just, um, speak strictly to your base. You have to think about the people in the middle. And there's a lot of people in the middle here in California. And there's a lot of people who are Democrats who are probably on the edge. I would probably wager there's maybe five to 10% of registered Democrats right now who are probably teetering on the edge, who are most likely thinking like, I'm not a big fan of this Democratic party anymore. I, but there's no other better option. So, I mean, you start to pick up those Democrats, you start to pick up a good chunk of the independents. All of a sudden, you have a formidable team. All of a sudden, you have a formidable political party because you've increased the numbers. Um, but you got to remember how to speak to both your base and those biconceptual voters. Um, it's all about activating those frames. Whew, so that's it. The little book review for now of Don't Think of an Elephant. So if you guys want to go and read it yourselves, you can definitely get it out of your local library. Um, that's what I would suggest. You know, just go get it out of the library. You don't have to give this guy any money. Um, the guy probably makes a crap ton of money just by being in political progressive think tanks and stuff like that. Like I'm sure political campaigns talk to him all the time about like, hey, do you want to help us frame why socialism is fantastic. And he'll be like, sure for $2 million. And they'll be like, great. Socialism is fantastic. In this capitalistic endeavor, in this exchange, we're going to talk about why socialism is fantastic. Um, all right, let's open it up. Sorry. I'll say these last 10, 15 minutes. We can chat about your thoughts about it. You can let me know. Do you think this was uh, helpful? Did you learn a lot? Did you think this was could you see like why California needs to get better at doing these things and get better at framing the issues and talking about these things in a different way and not always just kind of hammering a square peg in a round hole, as I always like to say, think about those things. And, um, yeah, you know, let me know. I know there's probably plenty of comments. Uh, someone said, I notice a lot of Dems call themselves JFK Democrats when we need to plan to capture them. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I think, and that's that comes down to understanding why are they still Democrats? Like, what is it that makes them a Democrat and hold on to the Democrat moniker? So, JFK Democrat, for people who aren't really familiar with it, would basically be a centrist Republican today. Um, he radically cut the tax rate down from like ninety to sixty percent. Um, he was very pro business, a lot of things. Um, you know, commie was booming once he did that. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff that JFK today would most likely be a Republican. Um, I'm sure he was socially conservative being Catholic and all. Uh, so there's a lot of things, but you have to kind of figure out what makes someone a JFK Democrat. Like what is a JFK Democrat? Um, what makes you hold on to that, that moniker that 
that even though the party that you subscribe to is so far to the left of what JFK is today or would have been today, why are you still subscribed to the Democrats? And I think that's because they've done a very good job of um, framing the issue and framing that the other side is the baddies. They're the bad guys. Don't go over to that side. You're still a good guy if you stay with us. Um, and that took a while for me to, to come over too. I mean, when I was a Democrat, I heard that all the time. You know, Republicans are evil. They're bad people. They, they just want to take your money uh, or they just want to make money and they don't care about the consequences, the environment, to the middle and lower classes. They don't care. They want to take your prescription drugs away. So you're always told over and over and over again, the Republicans are bad. They're bad, 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 bad. Um, and so when, when you want to make that switch, there's like a, there's like a internal conflict of like, oh my God, am I going to like the bad guy side? Like, am I going to the dark side? So you have to figure out how to start activating in those JFK Democrats, those moderate Democrats to think outside the box to the point where they look at, let's say a Republican candidate who puts out stuff that in their mind activates them as a voter. And they say, I agree with that. I agree with that. I like that. I like this candidate because he's saying those things and I'm going to vote for him. Um, and I think that's a that's a real big thing here in California is there's a big opportunity to 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 do this and to try it out with local candidates, with state assembly candidates, with state senator candidates, maybe congressional candidates who want to try this as well. Try it out and see like, you, you know, you have to dig in a little bit deeper, more than just this hour podcast. Um, but, you know, it, it may be the way to go is to start activating those moderate Democrats, those independents, and get them over to your side. Let's see. What other comments do you guys have for me today? Um, defund school districts. See, the thing, and here's a point that I'll make about this um, real quick. When you say defund public school districts, you're acting against their nurturing parent model, which is that the school is there to help provide for the children. So instead of saying we want to defund public school districts, you want to give a whole new frame where you say, hey, we have a better option for your children um, and we think it will help more children and it will nurture and, and inspire more children. That's when you say stuff like defund, it, it triggers, and I hate to use the word, it does trigger in people, and especially these nurturant parent models, it does trigger this idea of like, oh, well, they want to take stuff from me. That's not very nurturant of them. Therefore, they're the bad guy. I'm going to stay away from them. Instead, it has to become like, well, we have a better solution. And you have to show why what they're voting for now is not nurturant. It's not a nurturant parent model that it's hurting their child, that it's not that good, that their school tests are, that the, the school rates are failing, that we're dead last in education in the country or whatever. We're like 49th, 48th or 49th out of the entire country for as much as we spend. And in reality, you could set it up like, hey, we believe in school choice. We believe in vouchers because you as the parent, you know what's best for your child. You want to give the best for your child, Right. What if we said you get to choose where your child goes? If you get to shop around from different schools and say, this is the best school for my child. It fits my child the best. I know they're going to get a good education. I know they're really going to thrive there. Now, all of a sudden, you're activating that nurturant model in these like biconceptual voters where they say, okay, yeah, I may, I may agree with it. So you can't say stuff like defund public school because then it, it, it creates that fight or flight reaction. We can say their policies are cruel and break the backs of the working people. Yeah, absolutely. You you can make it a working middle class, middle and lower class revolution against the elites in California. Those who live in San Francisco and L.A. who, you know, bring in seven figures a year who vote for these policies that they live behind gated communities. It doesn't really affect them um, and really make it like us versus them and say, like, look. Our policies are to help more Californians, the Cal, the real Californians, the everyday Californians who take their kids to school, who go to work, who are playing for retirement and stuff like that, and point out that their policies are making it more expensive and they're harming people. And it's not very nurturant of them. Uh, we already talked about that. Uh, do, 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 do. Let's see. Any more comments? To be honest, 
I am a Democrat, but I haven't been inspired by GOP politicians, but I've come to realization I am conservative. I don't think we really are parties anymore. Yeah, I would I would absolutely agree with that. And that's awesome. Thank you. Welcome to the show. Um, I think that's how I eventually left the Democratic Party was I felt like I didn't leave the Democratic Party. It sort of left me um, the old Ronald Reagan line, which fits so aptly. Um, but you're right. And holding your with judgment in California from the GOP is because they haven't really done anything to inspire a lot of. I don't know. No, no one's rushing to the California GOP right now. And that's that's because and that's why the recall probably failed so badly is because they've just lost more and more relevance over the years to the point where people are not really inspired by them anymore. Uh, and it has to be and it has to change. It has to change where the GOP has be- much better messaging or the libertarian. I don't really care if it's an opposition party who can mount a strong opposition to the left and change things for the better here in California. I don't really care, you know. You, we, we could start the, the, the bull moose party. And if that works, I don't really care. It, that That's the my thing is that we want an opposition party that's actually going to hold a lot of these Democrats accountable and break the one party rule. Uh, and I yeah, I agree with you. I don't think it's really parties anymore. I think it's it's us versus them. It's the elites. It's the has versus the have nots now. Um, with all the rhinos would be nice to have a new party that prioritizes the Constitution and patriotism. Um yeah, but I, I don't know if that really, I don't know if that activates what we're talking about. That doesn't really change, the, that doesn't move the needle. Um, do, 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 do. I'm an American first party. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's uh, maybe make coalition party, including of all united in messaging. Um yeah, it's tough because each party wants to, to do their own thing and um, they they obviously don't want to work within their uh, best, in, you know, they want to work within their best interest. And yeah, there's there's an argument of like, well, if libertarians paired up with Republicans, um, so why don't we just pair up with them and why doesn't that work and stuff like that? Well, because in reality, people are still tribalistic. I mean, it's like, why do people go to sports games? Why do people cheer on a certain sports team that team doesn't really care about you they just want to win a championship um because we subscribe to a certain team it is a it is a uh natural instinct of us from thousands and thousands of years of being part of a tribe and believing that our tribe is correct and our tribe is good not saying it's fantastic but that is the reality of it is that people want their tribe to win so in reality, I would, you know, I wish it was like the end of Lord of the Rings where you had the guy who's like, I can't believe I'm fighting next to an elf or a dwarf or whatever. And he's like, how about a friend or whatever? I wish it was like that. I wish at the end of the day, it'd be like, hey, I, you know, Republicans and libertarians fighting together to save California. It's not going to happen because each side wants to win their own thing. And I frankly don't think the California GOP cares about the Libertarian Party. They're not much of a threat right now, um, but they're getting there. Um, they are building up coalition, so watch out for the Libertarian Party. It may take a while, but you know I, I've said on this program, watch out for the Mises Caucus because they're they're taking over the Libertarian Party, and once they take over and make it a serious party who really wants to win, watch out. Um, and that's what it all comes down to: is this is a this is about winning, you know? And that's that's the God's honest truth: is that this is about winning and and changing things for the better. Um, that's what it's all about. You can't change things from the outside and you can't change things with all lawsuits. Although lawfare has its place within this guerrilla warfare that we've talked about. Um, you still have to win. You still have to win and still have to take seats and you have to change the legislature. You know, you don't want them making gender neutral toy aisles anymore or, you know, banning all gas power motors over the next 10 years. You got to win the legislature. You got to start winning state assembly. You got to start winning state Senate seats. And then after that, like I posted this morning, you know, San Joaquin County said, we're not going to impose, we're not forcing any vaccine mandates. We're against all vaccine mandates. Think about that. A county in California just literally gave the middle finger to Gavin Newsom and said, we're not, we're not imposing any of that. So bug off. Like we don't care. Local politics makes a difference. You can insulate yourself in California 
with local politics, if you vote for the right people. And that's where this is all going to start. It's all going to start on the local level, trying out these frames, trying to see what works, what uh, what doesn't work, and, and slowly start building that coalition to where it starts to build up and slowly change California for the better. All right. Uh, all right. One more minute for questions or comments. Again, let me know if you like this style of podcast or show today. Um, this is stuff that I read. I, I, I do read this stuff and I think it's incredibly interesting. And I think it's, you know, I, I've been talking about this book a lot. I hadn't read, read it in a while. Um, and, uh, I hadn't read it in a while. I said, you know what? I keep talking about this book and telling people to go read it. I should go read it again. And I found out there's a new edition. And once I found out there was a new edition, I said, okay, well, let me go check out the new edition, which isn't really that much different than the old edition. It's just like a new introduction about what's changed in the past 10 years since he wrote the book. A lot has changed since 2014. So I'd be interested to see him rewrite this book again now, knowing what we know now with the Trump presidency. Uh, let's see. Do, 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 do. Parents showed up huge at the Placentia Yorba Linda school board meeting last night. So proud of them. Yeah. So I, I was on the um, Freedom as podcast yesterday. I was a guest on that. So when that gets posted, I'll make sure to share that. Um, go check out the Freedom as. That was a question that was asked about whether parents or not are going to be sort of the catalyst. And I said, they already are the catalyst. You know, that's why I use the, the affectionate term BAMs, badass moms, who are really leading the revolution right now. They're at the forefront of all this. And, and when you start screwing with people's kids, that really makes a difference. And to bring it full circle, look at how parents are going to these school boards. They're going to these county supervisor meetings. They're going to Sacramento and protesting. Why? Because they want to care for their kids. They, you've activated a lot of people who believe in this nurturant parent model um, to go out and get off their butts and go do stuff. And I think that's a missed opportunity. If you're the opposition in California, you're not looking at these parents going, how do we reach these parents and change their minds about who they may be voting for? Now, a lot of parents already do vote Republican. It doesn't really change anything. But it does show you that nurturant parent model acting out in real life where they want to care for their kids. They want what's best for their kids and they really care about being a nurturant parent. I mean, they're sure there could be a strict father disciplinary, but there is a lot of that nurturant parent mentality here in California. It's probably the most prevalent idea is this nurturant parent idea. Um, and like the book said, if you're going to win over those independents and those moderate Democrats, you do have to activate that frame of the nurturant parent and sort of make your policies and your platform based around that. And then once you start to base it around that, you get the buzzwords and then the buzzwords start to activate people and then people start to come over and vote for you. And then you start winning races. Um, I know I make it sound super simple in about 10 seconds, but that's really what it all comes down to. It's really about getting people to believe in your, your, your platform and it takes a while and it takes a lot of cognitive science to do so. Thankfully we have great people like George Lakoff, Lakoff to teach us how to do that. Even if he doesn't realize he may be doing it for Republicans here in California. So thank you, professor Lakoff for teaching us how to do it because you've taught them how to do it. Now we're going to do it over on this side. Um, all right. If there's no more questions or comments or anything like that, uh, I'm going to get out of here. I got a busy day. I won't be around next week. Next week, I will be away. Uh, it is going to be my wedding trip. Woo! So I'll be away. Uh, I won't be around. Uh, so there won't be a podcast next week. Uh, it won't be in a coffee, California politics either. Um, so I'll be back in two weeks. If you like this, share it. Make sure there's an audio version that comes out later in the day. Uh, if you like the podcast, podcast has interviews of people, roundtable discussions. It has all these audio versions as well. Um, thank you to everybody who supported by buying badges and um, merchandise, Elites Hate You shirt. Uh, so that will be, that's still up. You can go purchase your Elites Hate You shirt. It comes out uh, or it comes in a t-shirt, uh, tank top, women's tank top, um, as well as a sweatshirt. So if you want to go get it, rock some California underground merchandise. 
uh, and support the platform. Helps me do more of this stuff. You know, get more people on, get the word out and stuff like that. So if you're really a big fan of it, I love your support. So until then, until two weeks from now, I will see you. I will see you two weeks from now. Yeah, two weeks from today. So enjoy, share this if you like this content, and let me know if you want to talk more in the DMs. You can always find me there as well. All right, thanks a lot, everybody. I'll catch you on the next one. Thank you for listening to another episode of California Underground. If you like what you heard, remember to subscribe, like, and review it. And follow California Underground on social media for updates as to when new episodes are available. 